would take your Bibles and turn with me tonight to the book of Joel, the Old Testament book of Joel. A small book, just three chapters, one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament, minor for their size, but not for their substance. Uh, sometimes the prophets, um, we, we, we don't relish uh, opportunities to read the prophets the way we might historical narrative in the Old Testament, because sometimes the prophets can be a bit intimidating. In the case of the major prophets, there seems to be a great deal of repetition, and we're uh, really relying upon some historical background that may not be available to us to really understand the setting, the context, puts light on the text in a way, um, and so sometimes we're intimidated by the prophets. Even with the minor prophets, they can be kind of historical context heavy, meaning you kind of need to know something about what's going on in the background to really understand the message being communicated by the prophet. But Joel is a really simple and straightforward uh, prophetic book answering some fairly pressing questions for us, uh, questions that I think lots of folks are asking, questions that are worth asking and seeking out a biblical answer for. We'll do our best in the time that we have together to provide some of those answers. In the days of Joel, we don't know exactly when those days were, but disaster had struck the southern kingdom of Judah. The strike had come without warning. The skies grew black, but not by clouds. Rather, in a matter of hours, every living green thing had been stripped bare by a swarm of locusts. We don't tend to concern ourselves with locusts in our part of the world, but in certain parts of the world, even today, in the east, when a locust swarm makes its way into a region, it can devastate um, those who are uh, farming. Agriculture in general can be devastated by the presence of locusts, and such was the case in the days of Joel. In fact, it was so severe, it was not just a generational kind of locust swarm, it was a multi-generational locust swarm. Verse Two of Joel chapter 1 says, Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? No one could remember uh, devastation by locust on the scale that was experienced in the days of Joel. Joel seizes on the occasion and proclaims God's message for people now ready to listen. We listen when times get tough, right? We listen better when things are hard than we do in the best of times. And so Joel's message from God for the people was simply that the locust plague was a terrible judgment for sin, but it was a small judgment in comparison to the day of the Lord judgment when every man, woman, boy, and girl stands before God and a verdict is rendered concerning their life, a verdict that carries eternal consequences. In that day, God would destroy his enemies and bring unparalleled blessings to those who had faithfully followed after him. So what you have in your outline is a series of four questions that are asked there, answers provided for us by the book of Joel. The first of those is what we should do when the judgment of God comes. Here's a, before we dive into that question, here's just a little interesting fact about the book of Joel. It's different in structure and content from other prophets in that Joel does not, he doesn't list out or focus on the sin of the people. Now, there are certain sins that are identified in the book of Joel, but there's not the same kind of focus there as there are in other prophetic books. We've studied in recent weeks 
Hosea and Jeremiah and Isaiah, and there's tremendous focus on the sin of the people, systemic sin and individual sin of the people that God is bringing judgment against. But here, it's more of a broad sweep, hey, there's sin, so judgment comes. I think that's because Joel's interest is more in teaching us about God than it is teaching us about man. So as we ask and answer these questions through the book of Joel, it's kind of theology proper heavy. It's focused on God's work in judgment, what God intends to do. Again, the question is, as we begin looking at the text, what should we do when the judgment of God comes? Well, the first thing we ought to do is to pursue God with all of our efforts. Look at verses 13 and 14. Joel describes something of the proper response to the coming of God's judgment. He says, dress in sackcloth and lament, you priests. Wail, you ministers of the altar. Come and spend the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, because grain and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Announce a sacred fast. Proclaim an assembly. Gather the elders and all the residents of the land at the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. When the judgment comes, it's not it's, it's a time to seek the face of God. Even when judgment is imminent, it is a reasonable, suitable thing that we would seek the face of God. I, I think of the example of David when he sinned with Bathsheba and the death of their child was foretold as the judgment against them. And in spite of God having declared this judgment, David's rationale was, I'm going to cover myself in sackcloth and ashes and I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast that God would relent from the judgment that has been declared against me. Now, that's the proper response, right? You can shake your fist in anger at what God decrees he'll do, but it'll do you no good. The good and faithful God of heaven always does what is right. He always keeps his word. When the judgment comes, the first thing we ought to do is get busily about seeking the face of God in all things. There's sort of a series of of uh, actions that are listed here in the passage wail before the altar lie all night in prayer consecrate a fast call a sacred assembly gather together and cry out to god we're, we're we're far better adept at grumbling and complaining about the judgment that has come than we are seeking the face of god in the midst of the judgment fasting prayer worship celebrating who god is are all actions that we might take in response to the coming of any act of judgment. I'd add to that, I think we can discern the unfolding of any evil in our life as some measure of judgment, whether it's intended for us specifically or we're just sort of caught up in the fallout from the judgment. All of the wicked and wretched things that happen around us are the product of of sin in the world. Our response to COVID, our response to difficulties and challenges in life are always the same, right? We seek the face of God. We run to God who has the answers for all of our questions, who has the balm for all of our pain, who is the Savior in spite of our great sin. We run to God. The, the second thing you see here is, is a call to remember the things long forgotten. That may seem sort of a strange turn of phrase, but it's appropriate to the book of Joel. Look at chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Here Joel says, Woe because of that day, speaking of the day of the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty. Lie shriveled in their casings, 
the storehouses are in ruin and the granaries are broken down because the grain is withered away. How the animals groan, the herds of cattle wander in confusion since they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. I call to you, Lord, for fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness and flames have devoured all the trees of the countryside. Even the wild animals cry out to you for the riverbeds are dried up and fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness. Now, superficially, the challenge is if we're reading that and not reading closely, we're likely to say, all right, this means that there's, there's going to be a shortage of food and there's going to be a shortage of drink in Judah as a result of this locust judgment that's come against the people. But there's a spiritual aspect to this as well. If you don't have the wine that would have been gleaned from um, the, the uh, crops that would have been borne forth, what is spoken of here in the passage, or you don't have the wheat or the grain that is described here in the passage, then you don't have the daily drink offerings and you don't have the daily grain offerings and you don't have so much of the substance required for the ceremony that Israel would have participated in as a people. Our tendency is to see the loss of physical stuff, the loss of comfort as priority over the loss of spiritual capacity. But both are at play in the passage. The Jew would have understood clearly that the absence of these physical comforts also means some spiritual detriment in our personal experience. In fact, th this passage is the passage that prompted me today to say, we need to pray for the spiritual well-being of our people. So we're seeing all this stuff going on around us with COVID, and all of our focus is on COVID. But no one wants to talk about the, the factors involved with isolation and being on our own and separated from church and all of the other things that have come with efforts at quarantine and various other things. I'm not here to adjudicate that whole discussion, but we can't deny the fact that, that while there is the loss of some degree of comfort and satisfaction when judgment comes, there is at the same time some spiritual consequence that comes with that. Richard Patterson wrote, this kind of gives a description of the experience of the people of Israel with the loss of uh, agricultural produce. This meant the early stoppage of the meal and drink offerings. Both were offered in connection with the daily burnt offerings. These offerings spoke of the very heart of the believer's daily walk before God, the burnt offering of a complete dedication of life, the meal offering of the believer's service that should naturally follow, and the drink offering of the conscious joy in the heart of the believer whose life is poured out in consecrated service to his God. So what's being described here is being described in specifically ceremonial or spiritual terms. Yes, there is the loss of food and drink, but in a more pressing way, given the judgment of God that had come against them, there is a loss of certain ability to exercise the spiritual disciplines that God had called the people to. Here's a, a fourth thing that we ought to do when judgment comes, when dark days come. We should radically readjust our priorities. Uh, we, we begin to think differently about the world around us. We begin to realize what it is that matters the most, what may not matter a whole lot. Things sort of begin to find their place and eternal priority. I hope that when the dark and difficult days come for you, that your priorities are adjusted. And I would testify to the very real experience of living with the level of comfort that we live with. It is a very easy thing and enticing thing for our priorities to get all out of sorts, for us to be all mixed up about the wrong kinds of things. I will confess that when COVID-19 isolation came, 
my first thought was, they're going to cancel our baseball tournaments. And I just got to say to you now, a year into this thing, there's a lot more important things that have been the fallout and the, and the effect than that, you know. Um, when, when difficult and dark days come, it has a way of putting things into perspective, and that is a good thing for us. Look to chapter 2 and verses 15 through 17. The Bible says here, Blow the horn in Zion, announce a sacred fast, proclaim an assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the aged, gather the children, even those nursing at the breast, let the groom leave his bedroom and the bride her honeymoon chamber, let the priest, the Lord's ministers, weep between the portico and the altar, let them say, have pity on your people, Lord, and don't make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of storm among the uh, scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? What you see there is an adjustment in priorities, a radical adjustment in priority. And we don't do this in our culture, but in Israelite culture, when you were married as a man, you got one year out of military service and one year off most responsibilities to enjoy the fruits of matrimony and to make sure that you were settling in as a husband and a wife in an appropriate way, to an appropriate degree. But even the bride is to come bounding forth from her chamber. Even the groom is to leave behind the honeymoon activities and to, to, to be a part of this solemn assembly that calls for God to relent, for God to bring grace, for God to remove the hand of judgment from them. In chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we have a description of, uh, of our turning to God with all of our heart. This is a reasonable response when the difficult and the dark days come. Even now, the Bible says, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. The first thing I always think, I don't know if this is a good thing, if this is a spiritual thing, if it's a reasonable thing, or just a selfish thing, but the first thing that I always think when things don't fall my way, when it feels as though there's a, a tide of, of difficulty against me, my first thought is, all right, God, what did I do? Or, or, or all right, God, what do I need to learn? Because I really want to learn it fast so this season can be over with as quickly as it possibly can. Sometimes that's probably not as spiritually driven as what I would like for it to be. Sometimes I just want the pain to be over and to be able to press on into the rest of life with peace and contentment. But it's not a bad question to ask, right? Here the judgment has come, and Joel is there to remind the people that when the judgment comes, it is appropriate that we ask of ourselves, what have we done? And it's appropriate that we ask of God, Lord, what would you have me to discover or to learn during this season of my life? I, 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 I would note here that, that there is always an eye in the book of Joel beyond the locust judgment to a day of judgment that is to come. That when the locust judgments of life come, when those once-in-a-lifetime hardships occur, that's the opportunity for us to ask of ourselves what we have done and to ask of God what he would have us to do. Because there is coming a day, the day of the Lord, as Joel describes it, when there'll be no occasion to ask of ourselves what have we done or to ask of God what would you have me to do. When we stand before the judgment bar of God for a final verdict on our life 
where there'll be no technicalities, there'll be no getting out easy, there'll be no sloughing off the consequences of our sin, there will be a final and forever verdict. A sentence will be passed for the life that we have lived. We will be judged as to whether we have come before God under the shed blood of Jesus or on the merit of our own righteousness. And a verdict will there, in the valley of decision, Joel says, finally be passed. There's a second question that's asked and answered rather well in the book of Joel. For what can we hope when the judgment of God comes? Is there any cause for hope whatsoever when the judgment of God comes? Is there, is there any recourse? Is there any, is there any optimism to be felt for the future when God's judgment comes? And the Bible as a whole makes it clear that the answer to that question is, is yes. There, 26. Here, Joel records, I'll repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate, the young locust, the destroying locust, and the devouring locust, my great army that I sent against you. Some of you may know this verse in the King James language where God promises to restore the years the locusts have taken away. That's a verse that I learned a long time ago that served to be great comfort. The judgments of God against your sin, the consequences of your sin, the mess that you've made, the decisions that you've made that have reaped a dreadful harvest in your life, God promises to work in such a way as to restore even what was lost as the product of, of your dreadful decisions and the mess that you made. The, the years that were squandered in vanity and pride, God promises through the power of the gospel to restore once again. In verse 26, the Bible says, You'll have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of Yahweh your God, who's dealt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. You'll know that I am present with you in Israel, that I am Yahweh your God, and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. The first thing we can hope for when the judgment of God comes is restoration. That there's hope. And this is such an encouragement. No matter what you've done, no matter how big a mess you've made, there is hope for you. God can restore the years the locusts have taken away. If you will repent of your sin, turn away from your sin, and turn to Jesus, no matter how bleak your circumstances may look, God promises full restoration. It really is a remarkable thing, isn't it? I tell this story often, and I, I think I've told this here before, but I can remember the first time that I ever had that experience as a child of wishing that there were a way that I could turn back the hands of time. I, I wish I had only had one of those experiences, but the truth is there have been lots of those experiences through the year, years where I did things that I, I, when it was all said and done, I wished, you know, if there were, if there were some way that I could just wind it back, I would undo that. And sometimes not even for the consequences of that dreadful decision. Most of the time it was because of the consequences of that dreadful decision, but many times it was just out of the shame and the embarrassment and the guilt that comes with doing foolish, sinful things. And although the hands of time do not turn backwards, what we are promised is functionally the same. As God cast our sin as far from his mind as the east is from the west, and restores fully, as it's described here, the years the locusts have taken away. When the judgment of God comes, even when it's heavy, we can hope and trust 
in the restoration that Christ can provide. There's a second thing that's discussed at some length here. In fact, it's cited in the New Testament when Peter preaches at Pentecost. Joel chapter 2 verses 28 and 29 are in view. There in verse 28, the Bible says, After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams. Your young men will see visions. I will pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I'll display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awe-inspiring day of the Lord comes. It, we can hope and rest in the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. I, Notice something here, this is kind of a technical thing, but it might be beneficial for you in your study of the Old Testament. When we think about the day of the Lord, we, we tend to think about a singular event. But really, in most contexts, the day of the Lord can function to make reference to all kinds of monumental moments in history where God does a great work or God brings about a great act of judgment. In the case of what is described in Joel chapter 2, it's a description of the coming of God's judgment on the shoulders of Jesus, in my estimation. Jesus bears with the wrath of God. And after those days, as Joel describes, God poured out his spirit in a remarkable way on the disciples. And the gospel was heralded there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and the chapters that follow after. Even when the judgment of God comes, even in those monumental moments of disaster and grief and hardship, there is hope for restoration and the filling of God's Holy Spirit. Haven't you experienced that in the absolute worst of times, God is nearest his people? You, you've experienced that. In, your, in, in fact, the, if, you, if you were to poll the people of Longview Point Church, the overwhelming majority of the followers of Jesus that attend our fellowship came to faith in Christ through some hardship in their life. Something happened around them, something happened to them, something broke their heart, something broke their body, and in that moment, they realized that their only hope was to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just because we're foolish and hard-headed. Israel does the same in the Old Testament. When it's good, they never look to God. But when the hardship comes, they realize at the end of themselves that there's hope for restoration, fullness of the Spirit in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the third question. In the day of the Lord, who will be saved? Now we're talking more big picture, the day of the Lord, all caps. Not just these, these moments of, of disaster and destruction. It's not just with day of the Lord either, by the way. It's also with apocalyptic passages in the Bible. When we think about apocalypse, we think about the end of the age. But there are a number of apocalypses in the Bible. For instance, Genesis chapter 6 and the flood event is an apocalyptic event in human history. Joshua chapter 6, I believe, when the Israelites march around the walls of Jericho and they come tumbling down, is cast in apocalyptic language. And in Revelation, when John describes the apocalypse that is to come, he uses the language of Joshua and the falling of the Jericho walls to help us to understand better what the future portends for us. So there are a number of apocalypses, but when that big moment comes, when all of humanity is called before the judgment seat of Christ, when a final verdict is passed, who will be saved? Look at chapter 3, verses 12 through 14.
Here the Bible says, let the nations be roused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I'll sit down to judge all the surrounding nations. Swing the sickle because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes because the winepress is full. The wine vats overflow because of the wickedness of because the wickedness of the nations is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of Lord of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The the valley of, of decision here, and what's being described is the calling of all mankind before God for this final judgment is really not a place where people are gathered to make a decision. That's kind of a misnomer about the valley of decision. The decision is not to be made by the multitudes, multitudes that are described as being gathered in the valley of Jehoshaphat. The decision, the verdict, is to be rendered there by God. This is not the calling of humanity together to make a decision about where they're going to spend in eternity. That decision at this moment lies in the hands of God who sits upon the throne. Now in chapter 2, verse 32, if you'll turn back one chapter, the Bible says here, and again we have a passage cited in the New Testament, then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved, for there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised, among the survivors the Lord calls. This is it. Our only hope in the day of decision when the verdict is passed, is to have looked to Jesus Christ for the salvation of our soul. And here the Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, th th those, those will be safe in the day of judgment. Those who have called upon the name of Jesus. It's not accidental that this is the passage that's referred to in Romans 10 as Paul describes how it is that we are born again, that with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made, describing there a consistency between who we are, are in our heart and what we say with our mouth. And then Paul punctuates that paragraph with this promise, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's who's saved in the day of judgment, not by our works of, of righteousness. We get in our minds sometimes and from time to time, I find myself in conversations about this. Sometimes people think that in the Old Testament, salvation was about being more good than bad. Like you had the scales of justice, and as long as you kept some of the laws of Moses, and those acts of faithfulness outweigh the acts of, of wickedness that you did, that you would be saved by that. But, but the same has always been the case. It's not our acts of righteousness. They are as filthy rags. That's an Old Testament passage. This is an Old Testament passage. It has always been that the only hope for our salvation was to look to God for grace and mercy and forgiveness, acknowledging that our salvation is not the product of our works, but of Christ's finished work for us. Fourth and finally, what is God's purpose in judgment? And I really think that this is an important theme in the book of Joel. When we started out, I, I noted that there's not a great deal of focus on the sin of the people here, which I take to be an indication that the book of Joel is not so much about our ability to understand the nature of man as it is our ability to understand the nature of God. So let's ask of the book of Joel, I think this is appropriate to Joel, what it is that we are to learn about God, what God intends to do when the judgment comes. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 17 this is it this is what God intends to do when the judgment comes he says here at the end of it all then you will know that I am Yahweh your God who dwells in Mount Zion my holy mountain 
Jerusalem will be holy and foreigners, foreigners will never overrun it again. And that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine and, and the hills will flow with milk. Streams of Judah will flow with water. Springs will issue from the Lord's house, watering the valley of Acacias. Egypt will become desolate. Edom a desert wasteland because of the violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation, I will pardon their blood guilt, which I've not pardoned for the Lord dwells in Zion. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, what God intends to do in judgment is to sanctify his people and to make his name known. The priority being on making his name known. You see this in a variety of places in the book of Joel, specifically Joel chapter 2 and verse 27, you will know that I am present in Israel, that I am Yahweh your God, and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. When God moves in mercy or God moves in judgment, he does so to make his name known. I've sort of been impressed with the idea this Christmas season, thinking about the incarnation of Christ and how focused, how diligent God is in the work of making his name known. Christmas is all about God making his name known. The Father reveals himself in the sending forth of his Son. That's a central truth in that John 1 passage that we've been looking at on Sunday morning. In fact, I've had the thought of John 1. Christmas is what happened when God went on a mission trip. God sent his Son to seek out and to save that which was lost. God has been focused from the foundation of the world on making himself known. He does that in offering mercy and grace, and he even does it in the extension of justice and judgment against those who would disobey him. Let's join God in his great mission at making his name known in the good times or in the bad, whether counseling with someone who has come under the heavy consequence of their sin, the judgment of God against them, or walking with those who are rejoicing at some turn of fate in their experience when everything is going splendidly, we're able to say in both of those settings that God is at work in the world around us to make his name famous. And we'd say here he wishes to do so across the street and around the world. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for the encouragement that we find here, for the insight that we find into your heart, God. That, that taking your message, the good news of who you are and how you've dealt with us kindly to the nations is not just something that you've called your people to, but, but something that's born out of your very heart for humanity. Help us to see the needs of lost around us, to be bold in engaging lostness, shining light into darkness. Help us that we would not shrink back from those responsibilities. Help us to ask of ourselves when the difficult days come what you would have us to learn, what we have done, and what you would have us to do. God, I pray that you would continue to grant us insight into your word, that we would again find food and nourishment for our souls, that we'd be strong in our walk with you. God, we ask that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would help us to hasten to you in the good times or in the bad. God, we confess that we are so much like our uh, forebears, Israel, and that we look to ourselves or our focuses on the things of the world and, and the good times, Lord. But when the dark days come, we're prompted to, to remember your faithfulness toward us. 
Help us, Lord, whether it be on the best day or the worst day, to know that in our weakness we're made strong by the sufficiency of Jesus. Help us to never forget that we are entirely dependent upon your provision, upon your protection, upon your uh, presence in our life. God, we need you. We confess this desperate need. Ask that you'd forgive us of our sin. Grant us a spirit of contrition and repentance. Deeply held faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask it in the power of his name. Amen and amen.